0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Feminist Lens Podcast, brought to you by Women for Wanna Working. So today we have another special guest, Nicola Gill, who is a journalist, copywriter, editor, content consultant, travel enthusiast and mum. Nicola began her journey working on local newspapers and then moved on to Fleet Street, working on papers such as The Daily Star. And then she moved on to glossy monthlies and then into advertising, copywriting campaigns and working for big agencies uh including freelancing at the daily mail and mail on sunday a very exciting and vast career so nicola we're so happy to have you here today and thank you so much for your time and we're really looking forward to picking your brain on the journalist field um so our listeners will be really interested to find out you know what inspired you uh to pursue a career in journalism um
1: yeah it was really interesting thinking about this and actually um I had quite lofty ideals looking back about journalism. Um, I think that for me, I either wanted to go into law or journalism and I was a bit of a party girl when I was younger. I didn't get anything like the A-levels I would have needed to do law. And also I think that probably temperamentally I'm better suited to journalism, but I wanted to change the world and I wanted to represent the underdog, um, women in particular, And I thought that journalism would be a good way to do that. Um, I've always loved people's stories, uh, their tales, their experiences. I've always loved drawing people's experiences out of them. And also for some reason, people have always opened up to me quite naturally and quickly. So that was an obvious fit. And even as a kid, if something was happening on the street and the police were there, I would just walk up to a police officer and say, Oh, what's happening? You know, my parents would be horrified and that carried on when I was a teenager. You know, if I saw somebody homeless in the street, I would just kind of want to know what their story was. And I never had any barriers between that thought and just saying, Oh, what's happening. Um, so it was a kind of combination of wanting to, to get stories out that were perhaps hidden or were from the underdog and being really nosy, basically. Um, but, you know, I don't think, I think there are some stories I've worked on, which I'm really, really proud of, but you do very quickly learn when you go into journalism that actually you're kind of like a hired gun and you're there mostly to represent the tone of voice and the, the view of the newspaper that you're writing for. So whilst you can try and be a bit of a Trojan horse, if you're working at the Daily Mail and you say... Let's do a piece on you know X Y Z feminist this that and the other. Well, it's just not going to happen, you know. So you you are a gun for hire, but but yeah, that was my original ideal. Maybe you know a bit like being being a being a barrister, which is my alternative thing that I wanted to be if I'd been brilliant and academic enough. Was that you know you, you you don't you don't judge as a journalist. At least you certainly don't judge in the moment because whoever it is that you're interviewing, whether it's a politician who has a very, very different view from you, or it's somebody who's a convicted rapist, or whether it's a victim or whether it's a celebrity, you know, in that moment, your, your job is to get inside their world and their mind and their thoughts and not to judge. And you get a really 360 view of the world as a journalist because you, you talk to people that, if you weren't a journalist, you would never talk to. And you represent viewpoints which are, are not your viewpoints. You know, most of the time you're not going to be working for a newspaper or a, a magazine or a publication that is a complete sync with your views. And so you get a really 360 view of the world. And that's really, really interesting.
2: Mm. I feel like what you've just said there is quite all encompassing around this new skill or emotion that we've been talking about a lot recently especially around female leaders who've been very successful in the COVID-19 crisis and that is empathy. Um, So it seems as a journalist it almost seems like you are displaying right now an ounce of empathy and the people that you speak to um, it feels like that maybe is something you need to have as a journalist and this kind of leads on to this next question I wanted to me and Paris wanted to kind of delve deeper into was, um so the first female full-time employed journalist in Fleet Street was Eliza Lynn Linton, who was employed by the Morning Chronicle from 1848. Um, how hard has it been, being a woman, pursuing a career in journalism? And have you felt you have been treated differently to your male counterparts? Because you are a woman so obviously 1848 it wasn't that long ago really in in the grand scheme of things and um yeah if you could expand on that
1: yeah I think uh, so I started in local papers on work experience which is the the tried and tested route into journalism didn't do a journalism degree or anything um did English at university and at local paper paper level it was a sort of level playing field I think um at least a third of the staff were women. Okay, the editor was male, but it it was it was felt pretty equal. Um, but then when I went off to Fleet Street after I think probably about three years, sort of you know getting my stripes, it was really really different. I mean, my first Fleet Street paper was the Daily Star, which <laughs> quite a baptism of fire as a sort of feminist young woman. You know, um, obviously I knew what I was getting into, but. Um, it was not not that many women on staff at reporter level, men all the way at any sort of middle to senior levels. Um, in the, I was a news reporter at the time. And a very Boise environment, obviously, you know, page three, perhaps not in its heyday, but certainly going very, very strong. Um, and it was the tail end of really old Fleet Street days. They had an in-house pub in the ground floor, which was... T- opened 24 hours with its own license and it was wood panelled like a proper old boy's boozer and the theory was that if you had a pub in-house you always knew where to find the journalists rather than them being sort of spread around you know the area so a heavy drinking culture really boysy the assumption was that women would do sort of showbiz or lighter stories which wasn't my thing at all but I was kind of shunted into that area constantly. They sort of kind of offered me this role setting up a showbiz desk. This was when the 3am 3, three a.m. girls were starting on the mirror and sort of showbiz was becoming a really big thing. So I don't want to do showbiz, which was kind of because I dressed in quite a colorful way and I didn't want to just wear a black suit and stuff. And I had sort of bleach blonde hair and it was like, well, obviously that's you. It's going to be fashion and celebrities. And, and it was constantly sort of pushed towards that. Um, the sexism was really kind of out there. I mean, the, the advantage of it being a sort of Boise environment was that it was just completely out there and, and easy to deal with in that respect. There was no sort of undercurrents. It was just, you know, <laughs> that's the way it is. And I remember when I wrote my, one of my first little stories that I wrote there probably it was still sort of testing me out. And it was about, I think it was about a family house that had burnt down in a fire. And I wrote it as, you know, they lost everything. They lost their house. And I was pulled up immediately. It's like, well, it's his house. Cause he earns the money. It's like, well, but they're married. No, no, he has the money. It's his house. She looks after the kids. He's lost everything, and it's his house. He's financially ruined. And it was like,
0: wow,
1: right? Swallow hard, okay. Right, this is you know, and of course it was. It's was the Daily Star, but I was just putting my values on, you know. But that's still that's quite extreme. So yeah, um, sport, pubs, the races. These were important topics fashion the domestic sphere these were all trivial sort of irrelevant topics and that was just you know that's that's the way it is so male things were elevated to high status and sort of you know female things were were low status so it was a shock um but in terms of the day-to-day you know, the, the so that was the kind of voice of the newspaper. But in terms of the internal runnings of the paper, although it was nearly all men and certainly in senior positions, I was given a good uh, shot as anybody else. You know, if I proved myself on, you know, getting good stories and stuff, then, you know, I got the praise and up you went. But then I went, after about three years, I moved into women's Magazines. I got a job at Cosmopolitan as senior writer, which for me was my dream job, at least I thought it was and was so relieved to be leaving behind this kind of you know almost sort of schizophrenic thing where in my life I was sort of really feminist and in my professional life I was towing this kind of like page three's great sort of line you know and um, when I got to Cosmo I found that really quite hard because everything was so out there in a newsroom but the undercurrents of being in an all-female environment with loads of really ambitious women I I thought it would be really really sisterly and sometimes it was but in other ways it really really wasn't and I found that kind of more difficult I think. And like like a good example was that and this is incredible now but I got engaged whilst I was at the star and I couldn't wear my ring to work and I had to hide it didn't tell anybody. Because it was like, constantly sort of like, oh God, you're not going to get married and have babies, are you? You're living with that bloke. If you're going to get married and have babies, then forget it. You're not going to get anywhere here. Yeah, know, just absolutely upfront, Like, this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Shocking. This is 25 yeah. years ago. Although, I guess, 25 years in the Daily Star is kind of like 80 years. You the know? irony, <laughs> the you irony know, of that, you
2: know? because it's like, you can't wear a wedding ring to the Daily Star, but yet, the Daily Star, all they were talking about know, was the articles were wedding days. rings
1: and marriages. I know. Okay. Even if you don't work afterwards, I guess, because you're going to have babies and that were the end of that because you know the bloke will be in charge. So then I went to Cosmo and I was so, I think I think it's like a sort of Stockholm syndrome. I was so in this kind of thing that I didn't even wear my ring to begin with. And then I did just slip it on one day and go to work. And immediately one of the girls noticed and it's like, oh my god, you've got engaged! And they went out and bought me flowers, and it was all when's the wedding? And they were so excited. And, and I was so used to everything just being sort of minimised and being very cynical about these sort of, you know, small female things, which in a newspaper would just be dismissed as, all right, getting married, are you, you know. So that was really lovely on that, that thing, that side. But in other, other things, I found it quite difficult other ways. I, I found the, the more the undercurrents quite hard to navigate compared to just completely out there mm. in a newsroom.
0: Yeah, which goes on um, really well to our next question. Um, so in twenty eighteen, there was a global support organization called the, the Coalition for Women in Journalism, uh, which was formed to address the challenges um, women journalists face across different countries, um, and like what it's like to be, you know, a female journalist, kind of a letting people know what the current situation is and and how to basically fight this. So it's interesting to hear, and it's positive to hear that you didn't experience. That but what I want to spin this question is: Do you think this has anything to do again with race and your status in society at the time? So let's say you're come from a you know working class or up north woman, or you're a woman of color. Do you think you would have experienced a different, um, well, you've had a different experience, a less positive one? And did you actually witness anyone, any of your, women, your female colleagues, you know, experiencing different treatment? Who looked differently to you, whether there were yeah. other white women or you know?
1: Yeah, the Daily Star. Well, I would say Fleet Street still is very, very white. Um, nobody non-Caucasian at the Star if I can think of definitely wasn't Cosmo. All white, and I remember I had a really well, she's still a friend, but a, a Nigerian British Nigerian friend, um, who's a brilliant journalist. And when I left, they asked me if I could recommend anybody who might, you know, want to go forward for interview. And I put her name forward, um, you know, very African name, and they sort of immediately, didn't exactly sort of wrinkle their noses. And obviously this is 25 years ago, but it was kind of, oh no, I don't, you know, I don't, it was clearly, that was the reason why and I was really shocked even though Cosmo was all white um I just I was really really shocked and I felt really upset for her because I you know said to her god you'd be brilliant for this you know I'll put you forward and it was very very it was absolutely not explicit and obviously it's Cosmo we champion all women but clearly you know we don't champion all women I think things have moved on an awful lot since then I think the difference between 25 years and now is huge but then that was how it was and it, and it was It's still I mean but even now I can't think of the newspapers I work on there's not really really different at the Guardian I never worked in-house at the Guardian but they're still very white yeah yeah I think following on what Paris was saying
2: about um, obviously race and being a journalist, and I'm kind of going to spin it on the kind of headline front. How did you feel? I know this may be quite a personal question. You don't have to answer this um, if you don't want to, but the Daily Mail is known for kind of printing very racist or anti or xenophobic or anti-immigrant headlines. Um, And obviously they tap into what people are feeling anyway. But again, do they tap into it or do they exaggerate it? And then do the people see it, read it, internalize it, and then think it? Um, so I was just trying, interested to get your opinion as a journalist who has worked for the Daily Mail and the Daily Star, but as a woman, um, how did you kind of feel working for an organization or rather a publication with a headline that would say immigrants go home or something? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah. Again, it is very interesting. Um, I think that, obviously, well, definitely, you know, the, the editors would say, we are representing the views of our readers. And I know that the Mail on the Mail on Sunday do not consider themselves to be racist. Um, I know that there are, I, I don't think that campaigns against individual newspapers which don't agree with your views are a good thing or the right way to go about it? I think that if um, the Daily Star started looked the same but started printing Guardian-type content tomorrow, I don't think that Daily Star readers would go, "Hmm, yeah, I've never thought about things like that before. That's that's a really good point." I think they just start buying the Sun. Um, well, I know they would, and you know, if you think about it the other way, if The Guardian started printing, look the same at printing material that would be in The Star, I don't think Guardian readers would, when people never really look at it this way around, actually, if The Guardian started printing the kind of thing that The Star runs, I don't think Guardian readers would go, actually, yeah, it is my house, you know, it's my money and it's my house and all the stuff which I was told at The Star that time. And I think that it, you know, when does it become sort of censorship? If you start saying, I don't disagree with your view, which is more right wing than my view, therefore, you know that view shouldn't be printed. I think that's a dangerous road to go down. So it is, yeah. You know, it's, it's that Paul Weller line from that Jam song. You know, is it you give, give the public what they want, or do they, you know, do, do they want what they get, or get what they want? Mm.
2: I think the Daily. I think I think the Daily Star is quite different to then the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail is obviously owned by Rupert Murdoch, and it's, or the sun is kind of the same thing. I see it as really all the same thing. And The Guardian also is just like, I think The Guardian in a sense is again, does a certain type of person read The Guardian? Does a certain type of person read The Daily Mail? And this is the problem. It's like the media is so powerful. And I suppose it's very interesting to speak to someone like yourself who's had such an interesting career in it. It's just, it's incredible how powerful the media and journalism is in shaping society. Sorry to go off on a tangent there, but um,
1: don't a tangent at all. I mean, it, it, it's really, really important, and it, it, I guess it does come back to that question about does it shape society. So, if if the Daily Mail and like the Express suddenly weren't published tomorrow, what what would happen? Would that because you know the Mail on Sunday is the biggest selling Sunday newspaper. And the Daily, the Mail Online, the website, which is different from Daily Mail, the paper, it's slightly different, but you know, let's call them the same thing for the sake of argument. Um, that sort of sidebar of shame is the most read um, news site in the world you know, globally. With all those pictures of celebrities and endless picking over, you know, bikini bodies and so on. So, if the Mail and the Mail on Sunday stopped being published tomorrow, would that huge chunk of the British population change their views I don't think they would
0: yeah and I think that um what Nina touched on about internalizing things reading and internalizing I think it's about people having these ideas and then they are legitimatized by the media and then some political parties or, or you know politicians such as Trump so there's like hate rhetoric that you can think in your house, you probably just say it to your friends and family who feel the same way. You wouldn't dare say it at work, you wouldn't dare say it at school, you wouldn't dare because you're scared. But then you see the newspapers legitimizing this, like, yeah, the immigrants are taking our jobs and you see Trump or you see Boris. And so then then, then it becomes like, yeah, actually I'm right to think about this if a politician or the media. So you're right, it wouldn't change. I think it just would, people would revert back to being inter- like internalizing that rather than being open and bold. I think people already have those ideals based on their experiences and the media just perpetuates. You know, the ones who have, you know, given negative accounts of immigrants and women and rape and domestic violence and gay people and, you know, Muslims and, you know.
1: I I know that, that, for example, I know that the male, I mean, they maybe sort of 10 years ago, if you do did what's called a lineup feature where you have, Six women, and it's like, "Oh, what do all these women have in common?" Or it's called a lineup, and they're all sort of photographed next to each other. And um, now that there is much more sort of, you know, acceptance and understanding of, you know, perhaps two or three of those women will be women of color, whereas before it would have been, well, you know, our readership is mainly white, and we want that to reflect our readership. And so it is changing. It is changing, and. You know, it's ironic that at the mail, which has whatever your view on its output, its journalistic standards are extremely high. Um, The women that work there, and the mail is very, very female, sort of heavy in terms of journalists, are the sort of feistiest bunch of women um, who do constantly sort of push, really do push for things to be different more equal, more representative and so on. And I think slowly but surely they do change, but their readership is is not, you know, their readership's views are not necessarily cutting edge or whatever, and that they will very strongly say, we are simply chiming with our readership and our readership's voice deserves to be heard like the chicken and the egg, isn't it? I think we we could go on debating about this. Um, If we move on
2: to the next question, and this is about the uh, Me Too movement. So in 2017 with the Me Too movement, a number of notable female journalists came forward to report sexual harassment in their workplaces. Um, Does this surprise you? Is sexual harassment an issue in the industry, obviously from
1: your extensive Mm. I think newspapers are actually better places to work for women than a lot of other workplaces, which kind of slightly contradicts some of the things I said earlier, but um, sexist attitudes are debated out in the open a lot. As I said before, women who work in newspapers tend to be really feisty, really intelligent, really fight their corner. Obviously, they're very good with words. <laughs> Don't really, you know, they're not going to be browbeaten. Um and I have found that within the newsroom environment that I've never been, I've never experienced social, social harassment. I don't know any women who have in a newspaper environment or, or a magazine environment. I think it's actually a, a good place to work in that respect. Um, it's really fast paced. It's incredibly fast paced, especially on a daily. People are, are really, really busy, really focused on events and Whilst there might be this kind of dichotomy, like especially, yes, you can say it, papers like The Mail, where the sort of the view within the newspaper is of a quite sort of 1950s version of womanhood. And why can't we all just go back to the 1950s where women wore nice dresses and tea was on the table? In actual fact, within the newsroom or on the editorial floor, it's a really equal, pretty much an equal footing, I would say. It is, it, it's quite contradictory. Yeah, I agree. And female journalists do often talk about this contradiction. Like there's loads of us high flying ambitious journalists working here and yet we're kind of, you know, are we just mouth a view that we should be in frocks at home and yet they need us here and want us here. So it is, yeah, it's unusual unusual thing but then you know if if you worked in a supermarket that didn't necessarily focus on selling fair trade products and, and organic products you wouldn't be accused of perpetuating factory farming and inequality but people judge journalists much more harshly
0: whether that's right or wrong is another question that's actually a good point I guess because public opinion is so strongly shaped by the media that the in the world we currently live in maybe not so much many years ago I think yeah people do put the blame on to the journalists and to the you know media outlets but I think it's important what you said about the readers because I think that's something that I haven't particularly really thought of how the readers really do influence the you know what the, the news that's, that's written I thought because I know I'm not a journalist and I don't really know the space I thought that it's just you guys just decide um to you know, put some story up and then everyone just has to deal with it. So that's really interesting.
1: Oh, no, absolutely not. It, it It's, I mean, it's a commercial product at the end of the day. Um, a newspaper, whether it's The Guardian or The Star or The Mail, is a commercial product. And if they don't judge, if they don't read the room about their readers and what they want and their aspirations and you know their more shadowy thoughts and all the rest of it, they're not going to, to sell. Um, so editorial conferences it's, it's always, the lens is always is this what our readers think? Is this really what they're doing? What are our readers doing? And it's absolutely about reflecting that. It's not about pushing an agenda of well, this is what the Daily Mail thinks, and this is what we want the readers to think. It's it's completely the other way around because if if we don't, it's just like a fashion retailer, you know, like Boohoo has to has to read what you know their market want or or Whistles or Marks and Spencer. If you get it wrong, your sales drop. So the commercial pressure is is high.
0: And so, how do you so on a, So when you go into the office, um. And there's a story I mean how do you pick stories and how do you know like which one the audience are gonna you know take favor to more than the other do you have like a number of stories number of leads and then you decide which one based on your feedback
1: yeah so well I'm, I'm I've been in features now for for years and years and years although I started in news and in news obviously you're sort of reacting to events and then you're putting your sort of filter on it but as a newspaper um in features you're looking behind the news for the sort of human interest story or the investigation um so for example on a Monday at the mail on Sundays Monday is is the kind of quiet day because it comes out on a Sunday so news aren't in and obviously COVID at the moment hardly anybody's in but normally you you have your features people and you you come up with ideas by looking through the papers, looking through magazines, looking at websites, and and you're always trying to think about what are our readers doing? What is happening in their lives right now, in in our readers' lives? What are they interested in right now? What's affecting them right now? Um, What's gonna chime with them? So we we have a kind of, I suppose, a sort of idealized reader in, in our mind. What are they watching on TV? um what's happening with their kids like for example you know with a with male or a male sunday reader they are their kids are probably sort of teens to to grown up so they're not maybe interested in, in in stuff about toddlers um so much but they might have grandchildren so you've kind of got that that sort of lens in mind they tend to be um hardworking. obviously they believe in sort of you know you know, the values they believe in, so that there may be, that's the lens that you're always looking through. Yeah, it's definitely not a question of, this is what we think they should be interested in, let's run a story on that, absolutely not. And you're always looking at the comments on stories to get the feedback, letters, comments below the line, yeah.
2: I was just yeah. going to say, if you had any advice, if we have any listeners um, who are interested in getting becoming journalists, or maybe they want a career change, if you had any advice to give, maybe your younger self, say, I don't know, someone I don't know in their twenties or something about getting into journalism, um, what would you say? Are some like just quick like dos and don'ts?
1: I think you don't need to have a journalism degree. Absolutely not. Um, you you need to be it's weird how many millennials and news editors are always talking about this features editors are now scared of picking up the phone. People are scared of picking up the phone because it's all email and social socials and people are literally terrified of picking up the phone now. So you you can't be scared of the phone and just go and work at your local newspaper. there's a lot less local newspapers now, I know. Um, but that is the classic routine. Get work experience at your local paper or digital equivalent now, just you can't if you want to be a journalist which is different from being a blogger and there's a whole new sphere which has opened up obviously since I was since I first started but just just get in there and do it and you a bit like film where you have to start as a runner you just have to start at the bottom and work your way up and be prepared to do things which Unless you want to be a very niche journalist, which is, I mean, travel journalism and things are different, you know, that kind of specialism. But if you want to be a general journalist, you want to work on a newspaper um, or in a magazine, then you've just got to start right at the bottom, get work experience. It's very much a doing, hands on doing. The next question
2: is, thank you for that, by the way, I hope some listeners will be as inspired as we are listening to you. Um, But... So we have three different themes which describe how media represents gender, because obviously we're going back to gender, the feminist lens. Um, First, women are underrepresented, which falsely implies that men are the cultural standard and women are unimportant or invisible. So this is like the pictures on glossy magazines, let's say. Um, Second, men and women are portrayed in stereotypical ways that reflect and sustain socially endorsed views of gender. Um, And third, depictions of relationships between men and women emphasize traditional roles and normalize violence against women. These are three kind of just generalized themes we wanted to pick your brains about um, and what your thoughts on those three statements are. I mean,
1: yes (laughs) to all of that, obviously. I think that sort of going through them one by one. Um, certainly, when I worked on glossy magazines, um, you know, models who were, you know, painfully thin, anorexically thin. You know, the, the shoots would would come back, the beauty shoots, the fashion shoots, um, and you know, the it was kind of peak airbrush, I suppose maybe not peak, but getting towards it. You know, the ribs would be airbrushed out, the collarbones would be airbrushed out, the sort of dark circles under the eyes and the, you know, hair falling out. Um, and I, you know, I would sit there with the art editor whilst we would once we'd had the cover meeting and, you know, p- picked the the image or the fashion images or whatever, and go through it all. And it would say, I would say, do we really have to do this? Do we really have to go that far, you know? Um, or you know, indenting a waist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All all the stuff we all know about now that was not talked about then, and yeah, it was shocking, and it was fantastic when people started speaking out about it. Yeah, and cele- female celebrities started talking about it. You know, don't airbrush me, and they would still be airbrushed anyway. Um, so we have come a long way in the last sort of twenty years and I think that now you've got you know much younger stars like sort of Billie Eilish who you know wears baggy clothes on purpose and and it's just it, well I guess I, I mean I think some of them even have it in their contracts now they can't be airbrushed and I think that is starting to happen but yeah That's it's common. still not great obviously what you know the the ideal of a model is still hasn't really changed that much and magazine owners has, you know, they do buy into that. And the argument is in the fashion industry is always, will clothes hang better and so on and so on. We've got a really long way to go. Um, but again, I guess it comes back to that same argument about if we put, if, if we started using size 12 models on the cover of, of women's magazines and inside, Um, yeah actually it would change perceptions and I guess yeah I I think that's one area where I do really agree with you that media does have a responsibility because even seeing like Harry Styles um kind of
2: wearing a dress it's kind of um there's been different groups who've been thinking that yes it's a it's very positive because gender gender is so fluid so what do you think about um how again what me and Paris saying before like how we think media is just so so persuasive and so like, if you're a transgender, you're a young transgender girl and you're looking at, um, I don't know, someone that looks like you, who's also transgender as a model on the front cover of magazine, that's amazing. So yeah. it's kind of like the role model. Like, it's really positive. I hope that the direction that
1: we're going in. Yes, no, I completely agree with that. And I think, yes, I think it is really positive. And I think that what you will, what you will always find is that there'll be you know, publications that trailblaze and the more traditional conservative publications will be sort of, you know, throwing their hands up in the air um, as will their readers, but then their readers will, will start to talk to their, their children about this and they will start to become a bit more accepting and then that will filter back up into the publications. But I, I think that, that's, how it, that's how it happens. I mean, if, if you live in, in, I don't know, Worcester, uh, to show and, and you're in the W.I., and that's where you're born and bred. Um, th- these these concerns seem incredibly urban um, and incredibly remote to you. And how are they relevant to society? It's not that people who read the, the sort of in mean, the Daily Mail is always the, the shorthand for a certain kind of person, isn't it? But it's not that the people who read the Daily Mail are often actively against the this what the sort of, this sort of thing, as they would see it. It's that they just don't see how it's relevant because in the, the part of the world they live in and, and the sort of circles they move in and so on, it's just, this is urban stuff. It's nothing to do with us. And why is there so much focus on it? They're kind of more mystified often than anything else. And then it comes into the mainstream for them. There's quite a time lag and then it is eventually incorporated into much more mainstream things and it starts to change, but it, there's a huge disparity. I agree. But if you simply put somebody, if you, if, if the male suddenly started sort of pushing that agenda, it, it, I don't believe it would make any difference.
0: I really don't. And so on that note, actually, then, um, this is a bit of a big question, but we do always like to end on a high. And you have actually mentioned a lot more positives than I thought. And I'm sure Nina probably had some of the same views, thinking... Just because everything that we see in the media and you know the negative portrayals of women and stuff I didn't expect that you were going to have such a positive um so that gives me hope and obviously for the younger generation coming up um but you've mentioned that there's obviously some good and some changes that need to still come about you know um perception and, and kind of the the, the the stories that you print. Um, if you had a magic wand um, and you can do this from your journalist perspective or your feminist perspective but we want it to both link to the feminist lens like if you had a magic wand and you could you know change the world or change your industry you know how would you do it through a feminist lens? Mm. So
1: yeah I was I thought about this a lot and I I interviewed um, and again this is one of the brilliant things about being a journalist I said earlier is that you just get to meet and talk to so many incredible people um and i i was sent to interview um helen pankhurst who's Emmeline pankhurst's great great granddaughter um a few years ago for um i think it was red magazine or psychology's magazine and um she was a really inspiring person to meet and she works tirelessly she splits her time between Africa I think she grew up partly in Ethiopia or certainly in Africa and, and she she splits her time between here and there and she works really tirelessly as, as part of or maybe head of him I think she may even have started it a charity called Care International and what, what she does or what they do globally is they, they promote equality and dignity for disadvantaged women everywhere and that's not just in developing countries like at the moment they're focusing a lot on women um, in the UK who, who are sort of often at the front line as nurses and, and so on with you know with Covid um, and she talked to me a lot about commonality and wanting she talks a lot to schoolgirls in schools and she, she wants women in, in the UK and in all the, the wealthier countries to understand that feminism is about women everywhere and that inequality binds us all together, regardless of race and creed and so on. And, and I thought that was really powerful. Um, and I know it's, you know, it's kind of stating the obvious in some ways, but I think it's quite unusual to have a charity which which works for women everywhere and doesn't say, right, you know, we're just about working in, in these in these countries or these countries. It's just like, no, we're for women, we're Just for women on a really practical level so I think that idea about commonality and women understanding commonality would would be a really good thing it's quite diffuse as a kind of goal but I think if, if we all had that feeling that would be amazing
0: I love that you said that Nicola actually because that's Literally, literally the essence of Women for Wanawake, because yeah. so we've got the English, UK side, we have the the Swahili, East African, Kenyan side, and all about that someone in Kenya can relate to things happening with a woman in the UK, similar, you know, Nina and I, different backgrounds, but we have so many commonalities and things that we've experienced being women, um, and even me and you, or you and Nina, both being two white women, so I think it's really important that that is something that we understand, we're not against each other, we're together, and yeah. There's a different extents of this, um, but the fact is women are marginalised disproportionately in society, and this actually supersedes race. So yeah. more women are than someone of colour uh, or even a gay person. So I think it's important that we understand that every every culture there's an imbalance of how women are treated, and that's a fact. You know, so I think you mentioned that is really important, and um, and it just and this is the reason why we wanted to have you on here. I think that your experience as a journalist you know speaking to so many people meeting people from all walks of life both in country and overseas is, is a really important story to be able to share Um because obviously that has informed kind of your career and places that you've worked and the news and the stories that you've shared with people so so yeah really lovely to have you here Um and again you know I, I look forward to seeing you after um, this world that we're in because I don't know what's going yeah. on
1: yeah it's been really interesting to talk to you and thought provoking thank you
0: very much um and we didn't actually ask you about mummy's side of things but i think um we'll have to do a because also we want to be empowering mothers that work uh, mm-hmm. as part of yeah because this is very reported on in the media but yeah so nina yeah did you have anything to add
2: Uh, Just to echo what you said, Paris, I think um, you've hit the nail on the head about what Women for Wanawake is and also just about trying to understand um, other people's lived experiences, um, really recognizing one's own privilege and stuff and unlearning and learning and all that, like, all that jazz that comes with intersectional feminism we're learning every day and I think it's so interesting to speak to a journalist who's had such a long career and has really seen journalism change hopefully for I think journalism journalism is amazing it's the reason why we have whistleblowers the reason why stories are cracked it's the reason why laws change it's like without journalism we would not be where we are today and I think I think journalism is going towards a very positive place and it's really interesting to speak to someone that's part of that. So it's very exciting. Um, And yeah, just to say thank you so much for joining us today. And we are looking ahead and hopeful to the future. It's really hard to end on a positive note when we're in the middle of lockdown, 1,600 and something. Um, So just trying to stay
0: positive. (laughs) Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. and um, yes we'll put your details in the show notes won't we so people want to kind of look at the work that you do yeah. and, um, right. and 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 do you have a call of action again we do ask people is there anything our listeners we can do to support you you know any cause that's really important to you that you want people to to be supporting reading into tabbing into. Buy
1: newspapers
2: buy newspapers <laughs> On that note, we'll see you all next week. And a big thanks to Nicola again. If you could all rate, review and subscribe, that'd be really, really helpful to help others who are interested in feminism find us. And as Nicola said, let's all go out and buy a bloody newspaper. Thank you so much. Bye.